thankful that we get to come in amongst your people and to be together, to care for one another. Thank you for the ways you provide for us, even for those here this morning in difficulty, brokenness, that you are present. So we just ask that you would abide in this time, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I'm going to cast a a wide net here, um, and then we're going to hopefully kind of uh, hone in. But how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, you can if you'd like, have ever gone from singleness to being in a relationship? Okay, wide net. All right. If I can hone it in a little bit more, and and I'm just trying to include just about 98% of the room. I mean, even if you're in middle school, maybe you would fit into that category, right? How many of you have gone from zero children to one child at some point in your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. When you go from a place of, like, singleness or childlessness, where you don't have a whole lot of responsibility in life, a whole lot of belonging to somebody else or reporting to somebody else or checking in with somebody else, especially in that realm of a child, uh, when you go from zero kids and you're, you know, nine months and you're about ready to burst wherever Kristen is, right, Kristen? And you're just like ready for that baby to come out. And, and just in a blink of an eye, it's typically at 2 a.m. And you wake up and roll out of bed and either rush to the hospital or you're supernatural and you get the bathtub at home ready. And you're going to go from this massive life change from being well, incredibly independent on your own to all of a sudden caring for the life of another human to who, to some degree, depicts your entire life for at least a short season. I mean, when you're single or you're married and no kids or whatever situation you find yourself in, when you have this child, you've gone from not needing to do a whole lot or be responsible to a whole lot of people to a baby waking you up at 2 a.m., 5 a.m., 9 a.m., and you're just like, you get up. You get the bottle. You feed them, please. I am exhausted. And life can change in the blink of an eye. Blink of an eye. Okay, well, we're in Acts. There's no babies being born in Acts. Well, there's a church. And a church is about to be birthed in the section of scripture that we're coming upon. In fact, we've been spending some time in this idea of this church, and really there was this small gathering of people of about 120 in an upper room, and they were praying, and they'd been discipled by Jesus, and they were told to wait on him for the spirit to come to empower them for the mission of the ministry from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So you have these group of people that are just kind of waiting on the Spirit. And then all of a sudden, in Acts 2, as we saw the Holy Spirit come, their whole lives change. And all of a sudden, the church goes from this small group of 120 to, let's read the scriptures. Chapter 2 of Acts, we'll start in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, this is Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, or the gift which is the Spirit. For the promise is for you and for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many others, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day. There were added that day. Say it again. They were added that day about, can you guys read that? 3,000 souls. Now, I've tried to get my best biblical imagination on thinking of where Peter and the gang are hanging out in some upper room, and now they're speaking in unknown languages or known languages to the people that were around them, whether they're Perds or Perds, Persians, all right? Jeez, I just butchered that. Or Medes or whoever else. And they're going, we can hear, the Egyptians saying, we can hear you talking about the glory of God in our tongue. And all of a sudden, the church goes from 120 people to 3,000 overnight. That's incredible. And now you're looking at these apostles, these disciples going, how do we structure this thing? What are we going to do? What even is this thing that just happened in our midst? We weren't really much of anything, and now we're this big gathering of people that is going to come to be known as the church. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we've looked at two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit coming, and then we've looked at the kingdom And now we're going to look at the church. And the first thing we want to answer is, what is the church? What is the church? Now, I've got some slides for you guys, and it's a little fun game we get to play this morning. So go ahead and throw the first one up there. What is this? Well, it's it's a pub, all right, in Florida. It's probably awesome. What's the next one? What's this? That that is a building. That used to be what some would call a church. It's called... um, Steeplejack in Portland, if you haven't been there, delicious. <laughs> What's this? That's Grayson Hammer. <laughs> a pub. A pub. All right, this building, right, that looks like what we would call a church. What's this? I see Susan. I see Trevor. Parents of Vienna are back there somewhere, <laughs> right? What's the next one? What's this? Church. What's the next one? Oh, you can't see that very well. What is that? It actually looks like Carson talking about his favorite baseball team, but it's a TED Talk. Not a church. Not a church. And what's this last one? That's us. A church. A church. You know, over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, the church has been trying to do its best to disassociate itself from simply being a building to what it truly means to be a church, which is a gathering of people under the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to talk about what is a church and how does the church interact with this kingdom of God. Now, the word church, which we just saw birthed in Acts chapter 2, is the word ecclesia, all right? You guys want to say that one with me? Ecclesia, all right? You can hawk that loogie like we did with some Hebrew. Ecclesia. All right, good job. And now, what it simply means is a political assembly or an assembly. So Greek culture would have said an ecclesia was when they came together, the Roman Greco culture. It's an assembly of people gathering for political purpose. Uh, It can mean a church like it's used in our language today. Um, Also, the 
The Greek Septuagint, which is actually the Hebrew Bible written in Hebrew, translated into Greek, they use the word to talk about it in terms of a congregation. And so what we want to do this morning is go, what's so different about the church than a TED Talk or a gathering down at what used to be the Les Schwab Amphitheater, now it's Hayden Holmes Amphitheater, right? And I can't get that out of my head. But how is that different than what we're doing here now in this place. And so what I want to throw out to you is just sort of a rough definition of this idea of what a church is. I don't know if I have this slide or not, but a church, the church, is the people of God who live under Jesus' loving rule, called out to be a contrast culture to the world around us, extending an invitation into the life of the Spirit which makes you part of the living temple while waiting for the realization of God's kingdom in the future. I wrote that. I did not major in the English language, by the way. So run-on sentences and all the rest exist in there. This is what the church is. And to really get at the heart of what this is, you can, if you want, turn your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. In verse 24, this got thrown around a lot over the last few years, and we'll hopefully unpack it a little bit here this morning. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another or another. And I want you to kind of think that through, what it would mean to consider to stir somebody up. To what? Love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day is drawing near. That phrase, meet together, I like how Timothy Keller puts it. He says, that word, meeting or meet together, is a Greek word from which we get our word synagogue, and it means simply congregation. And so what Keller goes on to describe and explain is that there is a difference between an aggregation and a congregation. An aggregation, which if you don't know that word, I googled it, I had to look it up as well, he speaks way beyond my intellect at times, is a collection of individuals who come together like a TED Talk to listen to a speaker or to come to an event and listen to a concert or music. An aggregation is kind of like a bag of marbles. And everybody is like slipping off of one another, rubbing up against each other. And then after the show, you just go home. Uh, Back in the 90s, anybody a part of the punk rock scene? That was fun. I mean, MXPX. Well, that was all I was allowed to listen to as a Christian. So there's a lot of other great bands that I snuck to that my parents don't know about, so I won't talk about. But we'd come together and we did this dumb thing called moshi. And moshing is just where you create a circle and you basically push each other around. It's a whole lot of fun when you're in your you know, teens and 20s for some reason. And then after you got everybody sweat on you and you smell gross and were burnt by a few cigarettes and some alcohol spilled on you, you went home and on your own way and showered off before mom knew what all happened. That's an aggregation. I don't see those people ever again. I don't connect with them. Maybe if the band rolls back through, possibly two, three years later. But there's a difference between an aggregation, which is still a gathering of people, and a congregation, which is like a cluster of grapes. What are a cluster of grapes connected by? 
a vine or connected to something together. And they're organically related one to another. So when we kind of consider this description, a congregation is a community in which our lives touch each other. This is going to be an important thought process for us as we talk about what is a church, how does it relate to the kingdom, and then how does that actually get into our lives and influence and begin to change us. See, in a congregation, you don't come together just to hear a speaker or two or to have an experience. You eat together. Look around the room if you shared a meal with somebody in here. That's an intimate aspect of relationship. You pray together. About 15 of us back there before the gathering, praying together for this church. You spend time in close-knit fellowship with one another. I would go on to say we practice some of the spiritual disciplines together and confessing our sins and celebrating and rejoicing with one another. And that's a very different experience. Now, the question is, is what brings us together in that way? We come under the authority, the rulership, the kingship of Jesus. And this is where we're going to see this like kind of melding of kingdom, church, and where they come together and how it expands together. So let me just give a quick blurb if you've missed kingdom on kingdom, and then we'll talk about how they intertwine with one another. I've got a slide up here on kingdom and church and what is their relationship And the church and the kingdom, they're closely related, but they're not identical. And this kingdom promise actually begins with the call of Abraham. Oh, not that one yet. Let's go to the call of Abraham. I love that one. There we go. So Abraham, I'm not going to do his whole background and his whole story, but he's called out by God and he's given a promise in Genesis chapter 12. And this Abrahamic covenant, which you can go read it on your own is a covenantal promise concerning a great nation, a great land, and a rule and relationship. And so what many scholars and theologians believe is that this is talking about God's people, who at that time would be working through Israel, right? God's people, God's realm, the area, the space, the sphere in which he would actually rule from, and then God's rule as well. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, how does this all relate? Now you can throw up that other slide. So what we have for us is, when we talk about kingdom, we're talking about authority, which is God's reign and rule. And what we studied in Matthew was how God became king through Christ, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, ascending to the throne, stomping out Sin and death and evil, granting forgiveness of sin. God has authority. Jesus Christ has reign. Now, what that does is it created in in Acts chapter 2, church. What is the church? Well, as we saw, it's not a building or a synagogue. It's a identity. It's a group of people. Now, what does that mean? Well, since the church is not quite kingdom, and the kingdom is not church, there's an overlap of activity. And that is the realm in which the kingdom is spreading. Maybe you felt that even here this morning as we were singing. If you haven't sat up front and heard the congregation sing, like on this morning, it's phenomenal, huh? Hearing the voices in one singing unto the Lord, amazing, small piece of heaven on earth to make you forget 
Adam, how bad the Niners are going to lose today. <laughs> you just ignore it. <laughs> see, in this overlap, what we actually see happening is the kingdom spreading through Christ's healing love and justice, grace and mercy, and all the things that we have talked about. We see his reign and his rule in his people. And what Keller says when he talks about this is the church is to be an agent of the kingdom. It is not only to be a model, it is not only to model the healing of God's rule, but it's also to spread it. So the church is on mission to spread the good news of the kingdom. And in regards to the kingdom of God's rule of his reign, we know that the kingdom came with our Lord, as Jesus said, the kingdom is amongst you. We know that it's present wherever he is and his spirit filling us as we saw that we are living temples and the Holy Spirit indwells you. Therefore, where we go, when we gather, we are the temple of God and God is with us. His kingdom is present as we acknowledge him as Lord in this place. We know that the kingdom is both future in an eschatological sense, that it's going to come in its fullness, but it's also present here now. It's coming in a great fullness, but it's come in with who he is. So we can say the kingdom has come, the kingdom is among us, and the kingdom is yet to come. So what's the relationship with the church and the kingdom? The church is an expression of kingdom, but it's not to be equated with it. The kingdom of God is wider and bigger than the church. But in the church, where the church is truly the church, the lordship of Christ is acknowledged and recognized, and he dwells there. Kingdom is there. And what we're being invited into as the church, as we kind of shift back in now to the church, and there's a slide for this. Who is the church? The church is a redemptive community. What does that mean? The church, then, is a community of saved and transformed people. What we had Paula read this morning was incredibly intentional. Once you were alienated from God. There's a lot of different phrases that are used to talk about this. You were part of a kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. You were far from God. Now you've been drawn close to God. We're a saved and transformed people. And what that means is we participate in what we'd call a new humanity. If you want to, you can flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to read verses 19 through 22 to you this morning. Verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place by God for the Spirit. So what this is talking about is what we'd call the universal or the big capital C church. It's all people of all times in all places. And as we look at the movement of Acts and the church, we see that it's this multi-ethnic, multicultural congregation of people who have submitted their lives to Christ and come together under his lordship and rule, and now they're given this new life and new way of living. This is the big C church. And the little C church, like redeemers here this morning, is to really image and reflect what the universal church is at large as an assembly of God's people. 
This is who we are, a small representation of followers of Jesus who make up the church. So, the famous saying, I don't know, probably coined in the 90s, we don't go to church, we are the church. We don't come in to the church in the way that we come into a building, but we come into it in the way that we come into a gathering with one another of people congregated like a cluster of grapes connected with one another. Now, what did the church do? We're going to move through this really quickly. What we see through Acts, what we see in the epistles, is this church, the church, it gathered regularly together. What makes this such an important part of a church's identity? Listen, if you don't gather, if you don't come with one another, it doesn't matter what kind of a building you have, It doesn't matter what kind of doctrine you've set up. If you're not participating with one another, you cease to be a church. You see what I'm saying? As the people make that up. The assembly then makes the church visible to itself. Think about it like this. If we went on a one-year hiatus and just you showed up by yourself here on a Sunday morning, you'd kind of look around and be like, where's the church? Right? Why is that? Because you understand the church is this collection, this gathering of people under Christ's lordship. So when you walk in here this morning, this is a visible display. If you look around the room of one another, of the church existing, showing itself, oh, this is beautiful, to itself. When a church gathers for corporate worship and the congregation is presented, it's presented, as it were, to itself. Theologian Everett Ferguson put it like this. In assembly, the church becomes conscious of itself, confesses itself to be a distinct entity, shows itself to be what it is, a community, a people, gathered by the grace of God, dependent on him and honoring him. The assembly allows the church to emerge in its true nature. We can take each one of those points and make a very large four-part sermon. The church is conscious of itself. As we gather here, we're aware that we are all followers of Jesus, are leaning into being a follower of Jesus, are curious about being a follower of Jesus. Maybe on the outside, looking in, wondering what this is all about. But there are people in this room that make up the church who follow, love, and serve Jesus, and we represent that to one another. We confess that we are a distinct identity one to another. We are a little different than what a lot of other people believe out there because of what Jesus has done in our lives and how we're being taught, discipled to walk with him. We show ourselves to be a community. At least I hope we do as a church. We show ourselves to be a community that cares and loves and serves one another and we we are dependent upon his grace, his mercy for his glory. Second, when a church comes together, it doesn't just make itself visible to itself but it makes itself visible to everyone outside of us. Now, here's what I mean by that. If you want to, read Ephesians 3. Look at 7 through 10. I don't think it'll be up there, but it says, Of this gospel, I was made according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light to everyone. What is the plan of mystery 
hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers, authorities in the heavenly places. The world 2,000 years ago, believe it or not, struggled with a lot of racial issue structures. Struggled with class structures. The elite really put down those that were in poverty. Kind of born into poverty, live in poverty, die in poverty, born as an elite, live as an elite, die as an elite, and pass it on. And there wasn't a whole lot of crossing over, though it could happen in those ways. There was also a lot of, as we can see in the New Testament, issues concerning just race, how the Jews would look at the Gentiles and saying, we need to bring them in to be a part of this, or they didn't want to, but the apostles were writing to them to do that. And as the church came together and began to break those racial ties and those socioeconomical ties and say we are one, it was a visible display to the world that this was a very unique, distinct group that did not look what was on the outside, but was concerned with what Jesus, the Holy Spirit, was doing on the inside of a people. And so when they met and gathered together, when slave and master, bondman and freeman, entered into the house, so to speak, of somebody holding a congregation, a gathering, they then in that moment were no longer in those positions but saw each other as equal. This was revolutionary. This is mind-blowing for that culture. This is Paul writing to Philemon about a runaway slave named Onesimus who then ministered to Paul Onesimus gets saved or is a follower of Jesus. Paul sends him back to Philemon, not to continue to be a slave, but he says he is now a free man. Put his charge, whatever is owed, on my account, and you owe me so much more. Paul basically said, no money involved. I'm freeing this man because of the gospel. Mind-blowing. And he's going to sit in the gathering with you. And you know what, you know what Philemon? He's going to actually minister to you as well. And that was a visible display. The church being this multi-ethnic, multicultural group was a visible display of God bringing in many different kinds of people and saying, they're a part of my kingdom. And it was revolutionary in that day when you were supposed to kind of stay in your class, stay in your group, don't go outside of that. The church being a visible witness and display to the world around. Now, what else were they up to? Just list a couple of things. Get us out of here. But let's look at Acts 2.42. In Acts, as this church is birthed and it comes on the scene, there's a lot of things that the people continue to do that they did in their Judaism. They go to the temple. They say their prayers. But there's also some new things that get instituted and brought into how they're to participate in being a follower of Jesus. It says they devoted themselves now to what? The apostles' doctrine, their teaching, Fellowship, which is breaking of bread, sharing meals with one another, prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done throughout the apostles. So what's going on in this church? We're just going to be able to pick a couple of these things, but you can go to the next slide here. No, keep going. No, keep going. (laughs) Nope, keep going. Maybe I deleted it. All right, so keep going. (laughs) This should not put me in charge of this. Ah, yes. This is what the church did. They participated in evangelism. 
worship, catechesis. Right, that's a catechism, all right? It's this wisdom and knowing, uh, you know, who is God and what is God, and then there's these responses to that. You can look at it in old just documents like the Dadachi or whatnot. Fellowship, which is a made-up word that I have, one anotherness, love. Edification, advocacy. Discipleship, which is nurture. And then we see the church participated with these gifts. You can read Acts 3, which I don't have time to get into, and I wanted to, but we're not, which is the spirit unleashed. What does that mean for us? Knowing I can only pick a couple of things to share with you guys this morning. So anytime in prayer and reflection, there's just a few things I want to hit on. And one is this idea of one anotherness. Go back to the Hebrew scripture. Let us consider as church, as church, how to stir one another up to love. The word stir is to provoke somebody. You know, don't provoke the bear. You know what that means. This is provoke somebody to do good, to show good works and love, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And the more you see as the day is drawing near. The key to understanding Christian community is in this term, one another, or in my made up word, one another-ness. This word is mutuality, that we're gonna come together as one. When you come to church, according to the New Testament, Sure, this is the place that we came into. But not only that, it's a place to be counseled, to be shepherded, to be discipled, but then to go from here and to teach one another, to disciple one another, to love one another, to confess sins one to another, to admonish one another, to bear burdens. It's a mutual thing that is happening. And I can tell you, church, this doesn't happen if you just come in here for 30 minutes get some great music on the front end and great music on the back end, endure this middle 30-minute part, and then go your merry way and say, I'm not going to connect with those people again until next Sunday. That's not how this works. That's not what we're called to as a church. We're actually called to be a body. Now, it's impossible for you to look around this room and say, I'm going to connect with every single person in here. No, not one person is intended to do that But by coming together saying, I am going to connect with a handful of people in here. I'm going to get involved in life with them together, to encourage them, to bring a meal when things are rough, to talk about God's goodness and grace, to share our stories when we've been broken and God has carried us through, that encouraging one another in that way. One of the prominent problems in the church is spectatorship. That's the age-old analogy, especially since football season kicked off or whenever hoops kicks off, and I love that season, and I'll watch a Blazer game, and they might actually win a couple this year. But I'm sitting there, and I've got my... My wife always lets me eat nachos when I watch sports. It's good for me. And I'm cheering them on, and they win, and I call Andrew or my brother, and I'm like, we won, we won. Like, you didn't, Brett, you ate nachos. They won, right? That's kind of the way the church is, especially right now. Like there's a couple people really championing, carrying the banner on the field playing, and we're just content to say, we want to rally behind them, and we'll take their victories as our victories, and they are. Sure, they are, but God has called you as a church to be so much more engaged and involved, and we come here and we gather in this capacity to be spurred on for good works and to go from this place and to do those things. 
I like how Paul Tripp says this. He says, the church is not a theological classroom. It's a conversation. It's a confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, sanctification center. We're flawed people. Can I say that again? We're flawed people. Look, if you think you're perfect or you can pick out every problem in a church, there's a lot of other churches you can go to. That's great. We're flawed people. Do what? They come together. Flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and to love others as he designed. We get to be a part of this, this one anotherness in each other's lives. What's the other thing I want to share with you guys right before we go into just worshiping and singing is witness. Whenever I hear that, I'm like, can I get a witness? (laughs) Yeah. I don't even think I know the song. As the church, I mean, we talk about witness and we're like, oh, I don't think I want to do that. That's always weird. And it's like the guy handing out the tracks and he's wearing something to draw attention to himself or herself. Called to be witnesses of his kingdom. And what does that look like? It's twofold. It's twofold. Proclamation. Jesus is Lord. This is what they said. Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, not culture, not your political leaders. Jesus is Lord. Repent. There's forgiveness. Church, I think we tiptoe around a lot of things these days. Jesus is Lord is something we can no longer tiptoe around. Repent. It's a calling. Repent. Turn from how you're living. We're not calling people to some moral standard we're calling them to Jesus is Lord. Now, there may be a lot of life changes that are the fallout if Jesus is Lord, as we'll see. But first and foremost, we're not argumentative of how you should be living. We're talking about who you should be living under. And we have a problem here because we're out fighting the wrong battles. I'm not going to call anybody to live to some moral standard that doesn't first and foremost know Jesus Christ as Lord. And then I'm going to remember if Jesus is Lord, the same grace that was extended to me is the same grace extended to them, and they may be in a different place in their walk. No, I am going to continue to call them to repentance and check their heart in those areas. But Jesus is Lord. Does that have any meaning to you? It's lost its thrust on us because we don't have a Caesar is Lord thrust in our culture. Jesus is Lord. We proclaim that. What's the second part of witness? It's observation. Come and see what that means in my life. Some of y'all are good at telling people Jesus is Lord, but your life does not look like that. Like you're just awful to people online. I follow some of you. <laughs> I'm teasing. I do follow some of you, but <laughs> right? People are coming in to see us. What are they like? What are Christians really like? Because when I hear the stories, their churches are fighting, they're gossiping, they're backbiting, they're putting one another down. See, witness is also observation. If we're going to say Jesus is Lord, then in here we better be able to say, now come and look how that actually lives out in our lives. Proclamation is used to witness, is to make something manifest that's hidden. John Calvin wrote, That is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. 
That is that activity. That is the overlap. Church is a people and identity. Kingdom is a rule. This kingdom now here in this place is the activity in which we make the invisible of God visible to the world around us. That we can then put ourselves on display and say, see how we forgive one another. See how we love one another. See how we serve one another. We're doing the things that nobody else wants to do. Is that the story of the church? Historically, there's massive moments of this. I'm telling you, read church history. The fact that most of you can read is because of church. The fact most of you have medical care is because the church has gotten involved in those organizations, causing that kind of care to take place. We pick up the torch and we continue it. We carry it on, making the invisible visible. Yes, we proclaim. And we must proclaim, we cannot have a Jesusless gospel that is no gospel at all. That is just a call to justice and mercy and kindness. That's exactly what our political parties do. They both think they're right. They're both calling you to a way of morality. They're both calling you to a way they think in which we will get the good life if we live this way. But all they can do is preach a Jesusless gospel, one in which has no fruitful end. But it just tears each other apart. Whereas the gospel gives us the power to live the way in which we ought to live. The hope of Jesus comes into our life. So we witness, yes, verbally, but we say, come and see, come and see. Come and see how this community serves one another. If you've been here for a year or six months, is that what we put on display? Are we a forgiving community, an encouraging community, when we hear a call to service, even if it's, and Kaylin's going to love that I'm doing this, even when it's not our area of love, our joy, do we go, you know what? I want to show hospitality to people who may not know Jesus by watching their kids. So I'm going to sign up for that for this next season. I'm going to help in that because to the degree that we serve one another in here, I believe it begins to then spill out into the world outside of us. Scott McKnight, I really like him, appreciate him. He said, it's a deep commitment of presence advocacy, and direction toward Christ-likeness. God loves by making deep, unfailing commitment to us, to be for us, transform us, and so our love is to be God-like and Christ-like. Therefore, the church establishes justice, peace, and reconciliation amongst its own people first. We need this modeled well in the church And then that kind of justice, peace, and reconciliation spills over naturally in the community. Kingdom mission churches aren't just committed to justice in the public sector, but to seek embody it, especially amongst one another. I hear this all the time. Brett, can we get out there and do things? Yes, but you know what? If it's not happening in here first... If you can't fight with each other and make up and forgive one another in here, it's not going to spill over out there. If you can't serve in here first, you can try to go out there and just take those initiatives, but if we can't take care of one another in here first, how then can we display that to the world out there? That's what McKnight is trying to point out here. Paul said to be like great towards everybody, but then he went on to say, but especially to those, to be generous to everybody, but especially to those of the household of faith. And as I sat at a breakfast with someone, and we'll close on this this morning. As I sat at a breakfast with someone a few weeks back, they were talking about the box, and I loved it. Awesome. They're like, man, the box on Sunday is, is great right now. 
And at times, the box on Sunday has been really good. And when the box, like what we do here on Sunday, is good, you know what it means? We can then put energy and effort to things outside of here. When we have 11 holes and four back there, do you know what my week looks like? Recruiting, talking to people. How can we make this go well in here and love each other in here so then it spills out out there? And then when somebody comes in and they see what we're doing in here, it's done well to such a degree that they go, I want in on that. It's contagious. So much of Christianity and how to live is caught, not just taught. I can teach all kinds of things. You might be like, yay, in our hearts. But until you catch it, you're not going to be part of it. Listen, church, I want us to be a people who love one another well who learn to practice that as a church body and then to see it bubble over and overflow into our community around us. I want to see justice outside of here and service outside of here and see mercy and forgiveness granted. But I also know there's some things we need to take care of in here. And I want to encourage you that are doing that, but I also want to call us to it. See, it's a great opportunity as we're talking about the church this morning. What does it look like to serve, love, care for one another because Christ is king? Let's pray. God, you're good and gracious. You have said love, which is just compassionate and full and overflowing that pursues us is so good. And we pray that you would inspire our hearts, encourage us and move in us to serve you well, to love you well, to love one another, and to see that expand into Redmond and beyond. So God, work in our hearts, spur us on to good works, provoke us to what you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, a couple of things here in terms of response. There's three ways this morning to respond. One is if you're a Christian, I want to invite you to take communion with us. So during this first song, the tables will be open, and Carson, who's an elder here at the church, is going to come up here, and he's going to pray over communion. It's an offering box to give. They're kind of in the back to what God is doing. But also think, how can we serve one another better here on Sundays and outside of here? What does justice look like in here on Sundays and outside of here? And to ask God that question, how would you have me to respond when there's need? Whether it's a meal meal train, there's a person that you plop down next to today, and you're just like, how can I love you and care for you? What can, do you need anything in your life? I hope that's happening in our church. I desire for that to happen in our church, and to see how contagious that becomes. If you're able, let's stand, and let's worship the Lord together.